Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have one of our favorite returning guests. We have the amazing Colby Reddish. How are you today, Colby? I'm doing well. How are you both? We are hanging in there, aren't we, Landon? Very good. Very good. Yep. <laughs> and we usually read a bio of our guests, but since we've had Colby on before, Colby just for those that don't know, I'm sure most people do know. <laughs> and we'll link your previous video in the show notes because it was so amazing about um, episode. What was it about? It was about epistemology. Yeah. Why don't yeah. you tell everybody uh, very quickly, uh, give yourself a brief bio for those that don't know who you are. Sure. I think you're overstating my importance greatly. <laughs> uh, my name is Colby Reddish. I'm an attorney that practices law in Boise, Idaho, um, and also teach law in the evenings. Um, I, my wife and I, if you want to know more about kind of our background and our background Mormon stories, my wife and I have been on the Mormon Stories podcast, episodes 1550 and 1551. Um, and I would say that sex abuse and handling of sex abuse in the church is my biggest single issue that I will never let go. Um, and so that's why I'm happy to be here with you today to talk about it. Yep. That's exactly right. This is why we decided to talk with Colby, because like he said, this is his flag that he waves. This is what he talks about, and this is what he shines the spotlight on. So we are going to dive into the recent events of the Harrisburg state president. You're probably all familiar with this. It's been in the news a lot, and several other people have done in-depth, wonderful podcast on it. But we're going to put a little bit of a different spin on it. And I think we'll begin just by quickly reading some of the articles um, so that we can get up to speed for those of you that may not have followed it closely, because it is a really interesting story and a cautionary tale, I think, to anyone in the church who has a calling. So I think we'll start. This was in the Tribune. Um, Harrisburg lobbyist, LDS church leader charged with not reporting child rape allegations. So let's go to our next slide. Okay, Landon, do you want to start with that? Sure. Pennsylvania State Police have charged Rhett Hensey, a lobbyist and stake president of Seven Area Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint Churches, with being aware of but not reporting child sex assault allegations against a Lebanon County church leader. This is from the local paper in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was just going to make that correction. I, th I thought I'd pulled a Tribune article, but this is ABC 27 News. Yes. Thank you, Landon. The charges were filed on Wednesday, and Hensey is scheduled to be arraigned Friday. Police expect Hensey, 50, to turn himself in. He's charged with failure to report or refer allegations, a third-degree felony. In Pennsylvania, third-degree felonies generally can carry prison terms of up to seven years. Do you want to take it from there, Colby? Sure do. According to police documents, Hinsey's church leadership role made him a mandated reporter under Pennsylvania's Child Protective Services Law, which dates back to, or sorry, which dates to 1975, but expanded in 2014 following the Jerry Sandusky scandal to include more categories of people as mandated reporters and to increase the penalties for not reporting allegations. Sean Corey Gooden, who police say held leadership positions with the church's Lebanon ward, was charged in 2022 in Virginia with sexually assaulting a minor in the Woodbridge area and 2023 in Pennsylvania was sexually assaulting a minor in Berks County. Police said the assaults happened between 1997 and 2000 and the victims were between 8 and 12 years old when the assaults occurred. State police also detailed one sexual assault allegation involving Gooden and a 12-year-old boy at a French Creek State Park in 2000. Hmm. 
Let's see, I think we have one more paragraph. Uh, police say that Hensi, who was also chief operating officer of the Harrisburg-based Bravo Group, which tells ABC 27 News, he is on leave as of late Wednesday, knew about the allegations against Gooden as early as October 2020, while Gooden was a church leader and nearly two years before he was arrested. State police say Gooden and the victim had disclosed the sexual assault to Hensi who failed to report the abuse to authorities. Gooden was 47 years old when he was first arrested in 2022. And then we have a statement uh, from the church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints works actively to prevent abuse. Our heart aches for victims of abuse, and the church is committed to addressing such incidents wherever they are found. The church wrote in a statement provided by Hinsey's attorney, the church trains its leaders and supports, let's see, and supports their lawful efforts. The charges now brought by local prosecutors for failing to report the abuse are misguided and the church will vigorously defend him. That's what they said in the article. Interesting. Okay, so that was a local news station, as Landon pointed out. And then it was also reported, of course, in the Salt Lake area newspaper, the Deseret News. And they have sort of a different way of reporting it, a little bit of a different take. And their headline is, Church Calls Charge Against Latter-day Saints State President Misguided, Court Date Sent for Friday in Failure to Report Child Abuse Case in Pennsylvania. Hey, Rebecca, so, who owns the Deseret News? Um, would that be the church? <laughs> Okay, just <laughs> had to point that, that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Landon, do you want to read through this really quick, just to see a little bit of a different take on the situation from a church-owned news source? Yeah, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints says it will vigorously defend its Harrisburg, Pennsylvania stake president against charges that he allegedly failed to report a 23-year-old sexual abuse case. Hence, he is scheduled to be arraigned Friday before Dauphin County Magister Magisterial District Judge Wendy Grella on a single count of failure to report or refer child abuse. It would be inappropriate for me to provide any comment at this point, Hensi's attorney James T. Clancy said Thursday in an email to the Deseret News. Police said Hensi learned about the abuse while serving as stake president from two sources, Sean Corey Gooden, 49, who is in prison in Virginia for sexually assaulting two child relatives, and the man who says he was 12 years old when Gooden took him and his brother on a camping trip to French Creek State Park in 2000 and assaulted him. All right, you want to read the next one, Colby? Sure. Um, police said Hinsey, who as stake president oversees more than half a dozen congregations, is a mandatory reporter of abuse under Pennsylvania's Child Protective Services Law because he is a religious leader. But like most states, Pennsylvania law carves out an exception for information clergy learn through privileged communication known as peace priest penitent privilege, conflict Confidential communications made to a member of the clergy are protected, the law says. And we're going to address that in just a second. Yeah. Hensey has been the Harrisburg State President since September 2018. He is also the Chief Operating Officer of Bravo Group, a public relations firm that specializes in strategic communications. A Bravo employee told the Deseret News that Hensey has been placed on leave. And there it is. And I think at this point, we are going to turn this over to the expert to learn more about um, what does that even mean? Mandatory reporting? What is that statute? Let's find out all about that from Colby. Yeah. Well, thanks for allowing me to talk about this. One of the things that I have laid out here, <clears throat> actually, the, the two things I have laid out here are the relevant statutes. So it may seem odd to people that the Pennsylvania statute requires reporting even of abuse that had happened a long time ago. 
but I can confirm that I've looked at the law and there is no like requirement or exception that requires the abuse to be of, uh, of a minor that's occurring at that time. That's different than most of the mandatory reporter statutes that I've looked at. But in a way, it kind of makes sense to me. Um, statistics kind of bear out that people who tend to abuse children tend to have high rates of recidivism and um, that abuse tends to go underreported. And so while it may be surprising to people that that's the way that the uh, Pennsylvania law works, that is the way it works. There's no requirement that the abuse um, like be ongoing with an uh, with a person who's a minor at the time, if that makes sense. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that the law was written that way is because of the things that statistics and and social the social sciences basically tell us about uh, people who who have that proclivity to abuse children. So one of the things I wanted to look at is the actual law so that people have it in front of them as far as the mandatory reporting statute. So different states take different approaches to mandatory reporting statutes, but all states in the in the United States and the other uh, American jurisdictions, they all have mandatory reporter statutes. Some um, have specific lists of people who need to report. Others have a general like reporting requirement on any adult, anyone who's over 18 that learns of abuse. Uh, Pennsylvania is in the first of those categories, so it has specific uh, roles, basically, that are in society, specific touch points, especially for minors, that are required to report. And so I have it right here. You know, the following adults shall make a report of suspected child abuse subject to subsection B if the person has a reasonable cause to suspect that a child is a victim of child abuse. And we can see here specifically uh, listed clergymen, priests, rabbis, ministers, Christian science practitioners, religious healers, or spiritual leaders of any regularly established church or other religious organization. And so that's basically the provision that the stake president in this case falls within. Now, the subsection B talks about the privileged communications, and then there is another statute that actually talks about those privileged communications in greater detail. So the first statute we read for people who are just listening and can't see the slides is Pennsylvania Statute 23 uh, 6311, and then 6311.1 is the privileged communication statute. And Landon, would you mind reading the general rule uh, provision? So everything that falls under that general rule, sub A. Okay. So, subject to subsection B, the privileged communication between a mandated reporter and a patient or client of the mandated reporter shall not, one, apply to a situation involving child abuse. Two, relieve the mandated reporter of the duty to make a report of suspected child abuse. Right. And one of the reasons I wanted to read this is because anytime you're dealing with a bunch of uh, different statutes that talk about the same subject, there's literally a legal doctrine. Anytime we have a legal doctrine, we have to give it a fancy Latin name so that you have to pay us a lot when you have to come get our advice. It's a doctrine known as imperi materia. So Statutes that are talking about the same thing or that reference each other are supposed to be read holistically as like one scheme. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight, because I don't want it to be lost in the shuffle here, is that the general rule by state law in Pennsylvania is that we report child abuse, that there's nothing that's absolute above reporting child abuse. The general rule is that you should that that you're not relieved of your duties to report. And I want to make that real clear. Then there's an exception for 
specifically for confidential communications. So that's what's in subsection B, which I'll go ahead and read. It says that the following protections shall apply. Confidential communications made to a member of the clergy are protected under this separate law that relates to the confidential communications to clergymen. So if we can go to the next slide, we're going to take a look at that statute in detail as well. Actually, I'm sorry, we're not going to take a look at that statute yet. I forgot that I put something in between because I wanted to make this point. So in that same section of code um, relating to child abuse and domestic abuse, there's this statute, Pennsylvania Statute 236318, which provides immunity from liability. And I want to highlight this because there's a bad apologetic that comes up every time from the church's junior apologists, every time one of these abuse cases comes to light, we hear from the, these types of folks that if the stake president would have reported, he could have been sued, he could have been charged. That is patently false. Every time I've looked at it, that charge is pat or that that allegation is patently false. It was false in the Arizona case. It was false in cases in Idaho, and it's false here. There is a statute that provides absolute immunity from any civil or criminal liability as long as the report of suspected child abuse is made in good faith. And further, unlike other laws I've looked at, the Pennsylvania law specifically has a subsection that gives a presumption of good faith. And so it says, for the purposes of any civil or criminal proceeding, the good faith of a person required to report pursuant to subsection or pursuant to section 6311, which we took a look at, um, relating to persons required to report suspected child abuse and of any person required to make a referral to law enforcement officers under this chapter shall be presumed. And legal presumptions are a big deal. What that means is that you have to disprove that the person was acting in good faith to maintain a claim against them. So I want to be real clear. A lot of times when these apologists make this claim, there's something that they're saying that's true. And what they're saying that's true is the stake president might have been sued. And that's only true in the sense that I can sue anyone for anything at any time. But the first stage that usually happens in a lawsuit of this type of nature would be a motion to dismiss or a motion for judgment on the pleadings or what's known as a motion for summary judgment. Those are, those are escape valves that exist to kill cases like this that you know hypothetically could have been brought against the state president had he reported when you have a statute like this that guarantees full civil and criminal liability uh, immunity for someone who in good faith reports. And so, you know, I do that at work all day, like do this type of stuff back and forth, litigate cases like this. This case would be over so quickly if someone was sued for actually making the report when you have a statute like this that not only provides that immunity, but creates a pr presumption that there's good faith. That would mean basically that for someone to sue the stake president on the basis of his reporting, they would have to show that he basically fabricated what he's reporting to you know to the officials and that's just unless they're doing that but they wouldn't be reported for you know an actual good faith report right and i think it's not just the apologists i feel this is why everyone goes right to the hotline because i feel like right. that's just the vibe they are afraid that by doing what they would consider the right thing reporting it there's this rumor or whatever out there this thought that you yourself can be sued i think it's fear that makes the leader. And I guess I should explain, we do have people who, you know, are not so familiar with the church. Um, there is a hotline or helpline that goes straight to an attorney's office, um, a church attorney, a whole team of attorneys, and they do in the handbook, and we'll cover that later, if anything is reported to a leader, that leader is supposed to make that phone call and find out, you know, 
What do we need to do legally? It's not a phone call to help the victim. It's not even a phone call to, I don't know, get help for the perpetrator or help the perpetrator turn themselves in. It's a phone call to see how do I cover myself? How does the church cover itself more importantly? So I think that fear is what keeps everybody calling, that idea that I could be sued if I try to help. No, I think that's a great point, Rebecca. And, you know, I've had a few conversations with bishops who've had to call the hotline. Um, I, I've literally had sitting active Mormon bishops know that I am an ex-Mormon lawyer, that this is an issue that has bothered me. And I've had them specifically reach out to me because they don't trust and don't feel good about the advice they're getting from Kurt McConkie or from the, the church's legal team. That's that's literally happened to me in my real life. And specifically in some of those conversations, that fear has been stoked by those attorneys. That's what I've mm -hmm. been told by some of the people that I've talked to, that they've been specifically told if they don't follow the church's legal advice exactly to the T, that they basically use the threat of, well, if you don't, then you can be sued. They use that as a boogeyman to basically force people to do what they're saying. And I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't listen to their lawyers, listen to your lawyers, but people should know that, you know, when they're calling that hotline, they're in a really weird situation because one of the things that um, Mike Resendez is reporting on the hotline, and I encourage people to look into that, um, his reporting last year on the, the patterns that we see from the hotline, it is not primarily about caring for victims or like you said, Rebecca, even caring about the perpetrator. It is, if you look at the questions and the forms um, that the, the people at the helpline are filling out, they are questions about liability for the church. Mm -hmm. They're about, in my view, they're about minimizing liability for the church. Toby, I was going to ask, because in this case, you have you have even a, a more unique situation because Gooden was a bishop. Right. Uh, and so in that case, uh, when when you call the church immediately, their lawyer is there to defend the church. He's not there to defend the stake president. He's not there to represent the, the person confessing. He's not there to represent the victim. He's there to re represent the church. And in this case, it's their if you want to call it employee, it's their person <laughs> Bishop, who right. did the who, who did this uh, act. He's the right. one who who's the who who caused this issue. So now they're there to protect themselves against this person who worked for them. So they're now in a situation where that lawyer is more defending the church and and Gooden than they are the stake president. Or the victim and the stake presence there thinking he's getting legal advice to help himself. And really the legal advice he's getting is to protect the church. It's good name. It doesn't want to get sued uh, because of this. So they it's their best interest to push it under the rug, keep it quiet until you don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and for people who haven't, you know, haven't had a chance to listen to my wife and I's Mormon stories, and one of the reasons I care about this story in particular is this is not to the same level, but this is the same exact pattern that we saw in our local case. We know for a fact, I have police reports in my, in my office at home that our stake president knew that our sitting bishop was abusing children. And he knew for three months before it was reported to police, and he's not even the one who reported it to police. Now, Idaho has a clearer mandatory reporting exemption for clergy and, and privileged communications that was probably applicable. 
but it's an optional mandatory reporting exemption. It's not mandatory. Um, and that's one of the things that bothers me about this is the church, the law right now in many of these states allows the church not to prioritize the interest of victims. But the thing that is so offensive to me about these cases beyond just the fact that they involve child abuse, and if it, there was one thing I thought we could agree on in society, it's that we need less child abuse, not more, or not to look the other way. It's that the church claims in their handbook and in like even in the statement that you read, they claim that they care about victims when that is very clearly not the case. They need to stop lying about that and at least be honest because I am so tired of having these discussions with more nuanced members or with um, you know members who just aren't as up on the issues and don't understand. They really think that the church does the right thing in these cases. And the fact is that pattern the, the patterns aren't lying. Like over and over and over again, this pattern is demonstrating that the church cares about itself first and it doesn't care about the victims and it doesn't care about its members in the way that I think it should and in the way that I was taught growing up in the church, that things worked. Yeah, I, I just had this discussion with Rebecca that if, uh, you know, if if somebody comes in and, and claims, if, if someone's coming in and, and going to uh, confess a sin to a bishop, why is his first call to a lawyer? The, the lawyer's not there to represent the, the, the uh, perpetrator. He's not there to represent the victim. So why, did, why is a lawyer involved? The lawyer is only involved because he's there to protect the church. Right. And that, that's why that's the first call. Why wouldn't the first call be, if you're going to protect the child, to call the police and then the police could come and and now you have a chance to remove the child from the situation or to make sure that that person can't can't injure that child or why wouldn't the call be to a social worker to get the victim some help instead you go to a lawyer to protect the church in what case does that lawyer in any way help the the confessor be absolved from his sin and in which way does he does it help the victim get the help and assistance they need. It doesn't. In no case does it do any of that. It's simply there to protect the church. That's what that lawyer is there for. So why not just tell the guy, go straight to your lawyer and tell your lawyer that you did this because there's no need for me to be a middleman and call, call the church. And if the church doesn't want the liability, then the church should just say, look, if someone comes and, and admits a crime to you, Bishop, you turn it over to the police and then we're absolved. The general liability right there says if we turn it over in good faith, we're absolved. That's the best way you could protect the church, period. But what does that do if you do that? The church, in this case, Gooden, would have gone to jail. It would have been reported on the news, which it ended up being anyway, but it would have been reported on the news, and the church's name would have been drugged through the dirt, and that's why they did it. They do it to protect themselves so their name isn't drugged through the, through the dirt, while the victim and the perpetrator get absolutely nothing from that from that whole process. The, the guy could go to jail and still go to his bishop and say, I made a mistake, I, I want forgiveness, how do I get Jesus's forgiveness? Right. He can still do that. You're not, by, by reporting, you're not, you're not stopping him from getting the, the forgiveness or seeking the spiritual guidance he needs. He can still get that even though he's been arrested.
Right. And don't you think it's very telling that I, not everybody knows this, but as, as Colby mentioned, Michael Resendez is reporting on Arizona. We learned so much. I mean, he was the reporter. If any of you saw the movie Spotlight, the one that took on the Catholic Church and shown a spotlight and the Mormon Church in that case in Arizona got in his crosshairs and he's done incredible reporting and continues to report on sex abuse and covers up and the church. So one thing we learned from him that not everyone knew is that when a leader calls this helpline at the end of the day all those records at the church helpline hotline are destroyed supposedly so who does that cover to me that's the most telling part they're destroying those conversations they're destroying any information uh because it would only go not in their best interest and i i just think that tells you everything they don't care they're just destroying records and covering their own, you know what. And they're vigorously defending the stake president for their own thing. Why? Yeah. Because they have to show that the church didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. They're not vigorously prosecuting or helping to get the 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 person that was abused anything. They're not vigorously helping to make sure that the man who perpetrated the crime goes to jail and stays in jail. In fact, we'll read a little later that they specifically tell church leaders they're, they should not uh, testify in any uh, court of law or lawsuits without their approval. Mm -hmm. So again, we see that they're protecting the stake president, not to protect the stake president, but to protect themselves. And if I was the stake president, I'd be real, real scared because yeah. if they're providing the lawyers, their number one yeah. job is protect the church and to protect the stake president secondarily. No, he needs his own counsel, I he think, honestly. Because in the end, don't you think he'll eventually just kind of have to say, look, I acted on their advice. He'll, I think he may have to say that eventually, but let's find out more from Colby. Rand, Landon and I are just ranting, ranting. We, we've been no, talking about I, this a lot. You know, there's so much to it. No, I love it. I, I love your guys' thoughts and I agree with basically everything you've said. I And I would just highlight, like, was that Mike Resendez's reporting on the Arizona Bisbee case has been something that's really important to me um, because, so just for the timeline, for, for my own personal journey, because I, I want people to understand how important this issue is to me. My wife and I appeared on Mormon Stories in February 2022, and Mike Resendez broke the story about the Bisbee case in August 2022. Between going on Mormon Stories and then appearing, or that uh, August uh, reporting, basically talking about this story and bringing it to light, um, we had been working behind the scenes in meetings with both our state president and the area president. And we had been going back and forth with them, talking about the church's sex abuse policies and had been invited by a member of the first quorum of the 70 to write a letter to Salt Lake, suggesting like three policy changes that we felt were really important. And the first of them was very basic, like stop using these optional mandatory reporting exemptions to not report child abuse. Report it every single time. Put it in the handbook that that's just what we do. That part of your repentance process, if you're a child abuser, means dealing with the consequences of that legally. Um, and you can, you know, you can have your own attorney or whatever, but there are other faiths, like other denominations of Christianity that take that exact tack, that say, we have no, like, what the Mormon church says, these churches actually do it. When they say, you know, we don't tolerate abuse, they really don't. It's part of their thing that you know if you're going in to talk to your priest that you are going to be reported if that's something you admit to. And um, I, 
for the life of me, I cannot understand the church's resistance on this issue because it makes them look so bad, even to sitting bishops, again, even to sitting bishops that reach out to ex-Mormon lawyers. Church or whatever, Strengthening Church Members Committee, if you're listening to this, you have a problem. If your bishops are calling me, I am not very important. But if they're calling me because they don't trust advice coming from your legal counsel, that is a huge problem for you. And you can make all of this go away and show that you actually don't tolerate child abuse by changing these policies. And it is so simple. To get back to the story and the timeline, my wife and I sent this letter. We get an absolute blow off from the first presidency, which we were asked to write to, by the way. And the, I think it was like within a week, uh, Mike Resendez breaks the story about the Bisbee case and how abhorrent it is. And I couldn't stop, be, partially because I'm a lawyer and I love researching stuff. I read every single document involved in that case, every single one. I read the entire transcript of the mother's trial because the father committed suicide. I understand the facts of that case. And the church should be ashamed of what it allowed to happen to the, at least partially allowed to happen to those girls. I'm not saying it's completely responsible for abuse that happens outside of church buildings and in people's private homes, but they allowed it to continue. And that is a huge problem. And this, this issue is the reason that my wife and I, after that story was broken and it was clear to us that the church, for whatever reason, refuses to improve on this, that is what made us decide to leave the church formally and remove our records from the church. And so I, you know, I love your guys' passion. I share it because for the life of me, even as a lawyer, I don't understand what they are doing. I don't understand these choices. They make absolutely no sense. Even something as simple as like the destruction of records that you just brought up, Rebecca, there's a legal doctrine known as spoliation, which means that if, let's say like in this very case where President Hintze is being, um, you know, being prosecuted, there's an idea of spoliation, which means that if you engage in the willful destruction of evidence, when the other side argues, hey, we were looking for this evidence and here's what we think it shows. If the other side can show spoliation, that they, the judge will give an order or a limiting instruction to a jury that says this evidence that was wrongfully destroyed, it stands for what the proponent says it would have standed, you know, stood for. And the reason that that penalty has to be so severe is because we need to send a clear signal that you can't destroy evidence. And yet the church like just gets away with it. It's so mind boggling to me, the things that they're able to get away with. Sorry, now I'm also getting fired up, but I, <laughs> this, this is a very issue just, podcast. <laughs> there are other things, there are other things in the church and other things I could say about the church that are flattering, not on this. There, I give no quarter on this because we're talking about children. If you care about children, then you need to understand this stuff. And I don't care what it means about your faith for the church. Keep going, work, work within, you know, your area to make the church better, but like actually do something. Demand some change because this needs to change right now. It needs to have changed 20 years ago, but it definitely needs to change now. So with all of those thoughts out, let's turn to our next slide, which is the actual privilege. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, because I've made this distinction on pod, not on your show, but on other podcasts when I've talked about abuse before, um, it, and it's true for most states, but it's not true for Pennsylvania. Mandatory reporting laws and mandatory reporting exemptions or exceptions are usually separate, but related to the actual privilege, to the actual 
um, rule of privilege. So those are usually provided in a statute and then in a court rule. That's the way it works here in Idaho. And that's the way it works um, in Pennsylvania as well. They have a statute and then they have a court rule. Um, Pennsylvania's scheme of this is a little bit unique to me in the sense that their mandatory reporting exemption that we looked at previously before we got on our angry rant, it hooks directly into the privilege. So what that means is that um, if something really is privileged, that it can't be reported, okay? So that's what the church is gonna attempt to argue is like was in that Deseret News piece, they're gonna attempt to argue that everything that uh, the stake president in this case learned falls within the scope of this priest penitent privilege. Here's that statute. So it's uh, the 42nd Pennsylvania statute 5943, and it's titled Confidential Communications to Clergymen. And I'll go ahead and read it. it says no clergyman, priest, rabbi, or minister of the gospel of any regularly established church or religious organization, except clergymen or ministers who are self-ordained or who are members of religious organization into which members other than the leader thereof are deemed clergymen or ministers, who, while in the course of his duties, has acquired information from any person secretly and in confidence, shall be compelled or allowed without consent of such person to disclose that information in any legal proceeding, trial, or investigation before any government unit. And one of the things I wanted to note, um, Radio Free Mormon, uh, who I've done some shows with in the past, and I know both of you have as well, he has done a story on or a, a podcast episode on this story as well. And one of the things that he highlights is that language specifically exempting, um, you know, clergymen who are self-ordained or who are members of religious organizations in which members other than the leader thereof are deemed clergymen or ministers. He's made the argument that that language makes the privilege exemption here or the, the confidential communication privilege just wholly not applicable to the Mormon church. I can absolutely see where he's coming from. I just haven't done enough research on the pen, I don't practice in Pennsylvania, and I haven't done enough research to feel confident on whether that argument is correct. But I think it's a very interesting idea, and it seems to go along with the plain language of the statute. I wanted to highlight, though, on uh, this language, you know, what does it mean within the scope of their scope of their duties? What does it mean to, to receive the information secretly and in confidence? And one of just, I think, the legal basics that I wanted to explain is, you know, what lawyers do is when we look at a statute like this, our American legal system is based on the idea of the common law. And that's the same way that, uh, you know, the British system that we inherited from the British system. And what that means is that when cases are decided, especially by, you know, the federal Supreme Court or by the state Supreme Court, if it's a state law that we're talking about, the way that I suggest people understand the way that, you know, common law judges decisions like add to our understanding of the law is that they basically add little asterisks on certain words, right? So the best example I can always think of is the First Amendment because it guarantees us freedom of speech, right? Well, there's like asterisks all over the First Amendment and what that means. And what I mean by these asterisks is it's basically like, you know, you'd have to go down and go look at the cases and see the way that judges have decided those terms, what those terms means in that specific context. And the reality of the common law system is that we add to our understanding of the law every day, new cases are decided by the, the highest court that can interpret those, those statutes. That's just the way that it works. So let's look at some of the cases uh, on our next slide about this confidential communication privilege with, that the church is gonna rely on. Uh, in this case, Commonwealth versus Patterson, it's from 1990. 
One of the things I just wanted to highlight, it was decided by the Pennsylvania Sup Superior Court. And one of the things that they highlighted is that this statute, this privilege statute, um, was being challenged. The scope of it was being challenged by the Commonwealth, which that's just the name that Pennsylvania uses for their state. So that means that in some state prosecution, the, the state side challenged the scope of this priest penitent privilege. And the court wrote this these words, and I, I wanted to use this as our starting point. They stated, we agree with the Commonwealth that our legislature did not intend a per se privilege for any communication to a clergyman based on his status. We therefore look to the circumstances to determine whether the appellant's uh, statements were made in secrecy and confidence to a clergyman in the course of his duties. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is because oftentimes when these cases come up, people throw up their hands and pretend like priest penitent privilege is exactly what the Pennsylvania Superior Court rejected here. Like it is a per se privilege. Per se is just fancy Latin term that means as a matter of law. And so what, what basically the Superior Court is rejecting here, the argument they're rejecting is the exact one we see all of the time when these cases come up that nothing can be done, nothing can be said, we've got this priest penitent privilege. And the, the Pennsylvania Superior Court rejected that argument and said, no way, there's no super broad privilege here. And, and the interesting thing to me is if we were to turn back to the plain language, you know, they're really applying a new lens to what that language means, right? We need to look and see, did we have the requisite secrecy and confidence to a clergyman, someone who fits that definition of clergyman in the course of their duties. Any thoughts or questions on that case before we move to the next one? So um, this means that these cases are probably going to be scrutinized as they make the decision on Hensi's case. So, okay, exactly. So good to look at. Interesting. I want to yeah. make sure I understand. Are they saying there are circumstances where they could say something in secrecy and confidence to their clergyman and it would, and they would not have to tell? Really what they're saying is that it's going to be highly fact intensive. It's going to require specific findings that the statements at issue were made in basically under the terms of that statute, that they that they were made with the requisite secrecy and confidence. So this isn't a Pennsylvania case, but when I was looking at a case, um, I think it was a Utah case. It, or, I'm sorry, it was an Arizona case. When I was looking at one of the Arizona Supreme Court uh, opinions that I've talked about on another podcast, here's just an example to kind of illustrate what they're talking about here, Landon. There was a, a uh, child abuse case that was prosecuted, and um, there were certain statements that the defendant alleged were made to, to a priest and fell within the scope of this priest penitent privilege. The priest that he talked to was a priest at a Catholic hospital. And one of the things, or a chaplain at a Catholic hospital, and one of the things that the court talked about when analyzing whether that had, you know, the same level of what we're talking about here, basically secrecy and confidence uh, to keep it confidential. One of the things the court looked at is the fact that like the hospital door didn't close, that it was open like most hospital doors. And so other people could at least in theory hear what this person was saying and also they talked about how there was no reasonable expectation that the chaplain wouldn't say anything. He never told the person that. So all of these things, depending on the specific state law we're looking at and the judicial decisions that pertain to that state law, all of these things can get put into a blender. But one of the things I'm just trying to highlight here is that this is a factually intensive inquiry and it's not this automatic out that we hear every time these cases come up because I feel like that's what I hear 
is, well, he said it to a, a priest or he said it to a bishop or he said it to a state president. So the state president just couldn't say anything. That's the way it works. It's like, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it requires more than that. It requires, at least in Pennsylvania, as we look at these cases, it requires more than that. And I think actually this next case, let me, let me hit the quotes from this next case, because I think it might add some additional dimension and explanation. So this one's from 1997, and this one actually is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And one of the things that they highlighted here is they stated, in analyzing the scope of the clergy communicant privilege, which is just another name for priest penitent privilege, we must be mindful that evidentiary privileges are not favored. Exceptions to the demand for every man's evidence are not lightly created nor expansively construed for they are in derogation of the search of truth. And so if I were that state president, knowing that this is a case that's on the books and pertains to the scope of what priest penitent privilege means, I would be very afraid right now because what this is signaling to me, and again, I don't practice in Pennsylvania, so I'm just looking at some of these cases from an outsider. But one of the things that this is signaling to me, I mean, it plainly says it, right? Evidentiary privileges are not favored. Typically, when courts use language like that, what they're meaning is you really have to illustrate that you fit squarely and plainly within the bounds of this statute or it's not going to apply. And I like that the court highlights the reason that these evidentiary privileges are not uh, favored under the law, which is a correct statement. It's because they, they are literally in derogation of the search of truth. They keep at least what's alleged to be truthful evidence out of the courtroom. And that's why they're so rare. And they only pertain to very important relationships, attorney-client privilege, spousal privilege, and in some instances, the priest penitent privilege. Does that help kind of clear up your question, Landon? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I still see room in this that they can say, he came in, he, he told you he did this, and that he was in your office confessing it. That's confidential information. I believe in this case that the victim also came in and told the stake president, which, which at that point I would think, well, you've now heard it from another source, uh, so at that point you would be required to, to, to report it. But uh, so I guess that's my little hang-up is, you know, are you saying if they come in and say, Bishop, I did this, and you're in the office, closed door, do you have a, a you know? Because to me, the the this overall give give just because you're a religion, just because you believe in Jesus, you have a protection. You can go confess to somebody. Whereas somebody who's an atheist can't go confess to someone because, uh, you know, they they don't believe in Jesus, so they can't go tell someone that they did something. The intent right. of, of this communication Jesus is not knows. to allow people to break the law and get away with it and feel good about it and feel like they were absolved by some authority. Uh, you know, it's there to help you. Uh, you know, it, it's there to protect your your right to religion, but that doesn't shouldn't let you hide from the law or hide behind the, the religion to stay away from the law is the way I see it. Right, right. And we'll actually touch on that in just a second, because I also have thoughts about that. But I completely agree with you. I also wanted to highlight, you know, the fact that these evidentiary privileges, you know, can subvert the truth of a court proceeding. That just made me think about, you know, one of my favorite church quotes, which is not all things that are true are useful. Right. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> it's it's like the church has taken the same position just in court this time. 
Um, in that same case that we were just talking about, the Commonwealth v. Stewart, the court, the, so the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a lot of times when Supreme, state Supreme Courts need to interpret um, specific language, if there's federal court precedent that uses or interprets very similar language, even if they're looking at a state statute and the federal court is going to be looking at a federal statute, a lot of times they'll borrow from federal court judges. And you can kind of see that right here in this decision. They state uh, later on in the decision, federal courts have held that the federal clergy communicant privilege, and they're using this to base their opinion on what the Pennsylvania state privilege means, right? So they're saying federal com clergy communicant privilege protects communications to a member of the clergy in his or her spiritual professional capacity by persons who are speaking spirit, seeking spiritual counseling and who reasonably expect confidentiality. And I wanted to highlight this last part in particular because I think that leaves me with a lot of unresolved questions. And this is very similar to Idaho's clergy penitent privilege, which specifically talks about how the, it's, the communication is only privileged if it's made in a context that is like guaranteed confidentiality. It usually, it, it literally uses the word inviolate, that you have to have a canon law or church doctrine that makes violating that confidentiality not possible. And, and what I really wanted to talk about here is where these privilege laws come from. These privilege laws come from um, specifically dealing with the Catholic doctrine of the seal of confessional. What that means is the idea is that when you would go, and again, I'm just speaking from what I've heard from other people who are of that faith. When you go to a Catholic priest and you confess, the idea and church doctrine requires that it never leaves that booth. And that is just so completely different than these Mormon confessions, which at a bare minimum, you're gonna confess to a bishop and he may report, well, so let's say it's an abuse case. I'm gonna confess to a bishop or someone's gonna confess to a bishop, not me. Someone's gonna confess to a bishop. They're going to immediately call some other third party. That's not, most of the time isn't even in your state unless you live in Utah, right? So they're going to be calling someone else to talk about what you just talked about right off the bat. Then they may be speaking to a state president. There may be a disciplinary council where at most 15, 16 men are going to sit there and hear what you're talking about. Like, And they I'm might tell to, their wife. I'm that happens try, all the time, right? It happens all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. Or even, even, in the, uh, even in the Arizona case, one of the things that, was, that happened right on the front end is the bishop heard, the first bishop, because there were two, heard the confession and says, hey, let me bring your wife in and let's talk about it together. Like they're already bringing another party into right. it. So this idea that there's any level of confidentiality of Mormon confessions, I just find absolutely laughable. There are so many times that people have had things they confessed reported up the chain, uh, told to family members, told to spouses, mm -hmm. told to di distant relatives told to other bishops, you know, to, to talk like, oh, I received this confession from so-and-so that they did something with so-and-so in your ward. And so now you should look at this bishop, you know? And I guess my point is there is a specific policy in the church's general handbook of instructions that talks about confidentiality. It was too long for us to get into, but I think people need to really think about, and especially the people who are going to be prosecuting this case and cases in the future, they really need to think about whether the Mormon church even fits in this box in the first place, because I don't think they do. These laws are intended for the types of confessions that came out of Catholicism, 
which is the idea that you confess and they help you through whatever spiritual you know mechanism that you believe in. And it never goes any further. It's not like the Mormon system where you can be called to account for your behavior that you confess to in front of 15 people, or it can be shared with a family member. Um, and in fact, I know that Nino, Nemo the Mormon is basically asking his stake president and other, um, other leaders of the church, what is this doctrine? If the church has a doctrine that requires confidentiality, where is it? What is it? Because I think the church needs to put its money where its mouth is and either demonstrate that it fits in that box. And unfortunately for this poor state president, his case is maybe the test case of whether they do fit in this box. Um, and that's really just where we're at. Um, I just, I really want to highlight, I just don't think there's any direct analogy to the level of confidentiality that have typically been applied in these types of cases and is required by the law to Mormon confessions. I don't understand how the church thinks they fit in this box. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I believe that there's even something baked into Catholicism that if a priest were to break that, he could be excommunicated. I think I've read right. that. Like there's a very strong punitive, like they must keep this confidence. And I right. think about people that go to church courts. And like you said, if it's escalated um, up to 15 men, but even in a bishop's court, maybe more for a woman, you would still then have to tell the Relief Society president, because this person may not be able to pray anymore, may not, you know, you have to, there's this punitive side of it, you have to let everyone know, don't call mm -hmm. on this person, this person can't do this. So I had never thought of that, but you are absolutely right. And I think that the church wants people to think they operate like other religions. I think they want them to believe that their clergy is somehow trained and official until it works to their interest that they're just volunteers. So I think they're right. hiding behind the smoke screen. And I agree, this case could absolutely bring something like that out to let everyone know, no, this is just your neighbor down the street who's sitting in an office who thinks he has a power. He hears something. He tells many other people in this organization has nothing to do with what the world might think of as this sacred or solemn confession, right? That has mm -hmm. a certain um, gravitas to it. So, wow, great and, point. And once, once he calls the lawyer, he's, it's now left clergy. Yeah. It Right the away. He's not clergy. He may represent state lines. Church, but he's not clergy. <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh, my right? goodness. No, that's exactly yeah. right. And the church would probably try and argue that, you know, well, calling the helpline is part of the same arm. Like they're all acting as the same arm of the church. And I think I think someone needs to challenge that. Mm -hmm. And man, I wish I were a prosecutor again just to challenge that because I would absolutely love it. And what we really need is we need someone who understands Mormon culture and Mormon, like the context yeah. of Mormon history yeah. to bring this forward. Because another, just another point I forgot to raise is like the church used to literally publish in the Deseret News, people's excommunication yep. and why they were excommunicated. You're going to tell me, you're going to try and hold yep. out that you keep confessions confidential. Are you freaking kidding me? Nope. Like you used to publish them in your own freaking paper, yep. like not that long ago. And, you know, and even in my lifetime, announce them across the pulpit. I've told this story before right. of being a little kid, and I had to leave primary and go use the restroom. And I walked through the chapel where they were holding priesthood meeting. And I probably wasn't supposed to, but it was right in the back. And I heard them from the pulpit name my friend's father and say, he has been excommunicated. He is not allowed to, pre you know, and it stuck in my mind all these years because it was my friend's father. And I was like, what does this mean? Why are they saying their name? very public. It was not a private confession whatsoever, nor was the punishment. So 
Yeah. And, and even to even continuing today, I mean, yeah. we weren't excommunicated, but I know for a fact that there were certain people who had started to reach out to my wife and I, you know, they basically were going through their own faith crisis and that members of our bishopric were telling them, well, you know, they removed their records, right? Like you don't want to talk to them. And it's like, no, what, where's the confidentiality then? Like who's, why is that their business? You know, it, not like I'm ashamed of it at all, but I just think it's hilarious that, I mean, it's, it's really just part and parcel with all apologetic arguments, right? The church gets the benefit coming and going. Things are confidential when they want it to be, and then they're open when they no, don't. Their their leaders are lay clergy when they get the benefit of it, and then they're highly trained professionals when they'll get the benefit that way. The Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica when they want it to, or it took place in Upper State New York when they want it to be there. It's like that's and to come back to our first discussion yeah. last August about epistemology and critical thinking, like pick a lane, pick a yeah. falsifiable lane. And stick to it. But anyway, well, I, I was going to say one more thing or... about what you said, and that is the idea that when these these cases and things like these go through the legal system, people involved don't understand Mormon culture, and that's mm -hmm. a problem. We we've seen that when with the groups with the Cody Temple and the Heber Temple as they're right. trying to go through the legal channels to get it, you know, put somewhere else a little more appropriate. And unfortunately, their legal team and even these people themselves who are not Mormons, they don't understand. And so they'll say things like, well, they can't prove that, you know, this person acted on the benefit of the church. They didn't get any financial gain. Therefore, it's thrown out. You don't understand. It's not financial gain that would cause a person to do something or break a rule for the church. It's do your duty Mormon, right? It, it's it's your celestial, uh, you know, it, anyway, it's it just, you made me think of that, that they just don't understand the, the motivations of people or the whole culture of Mormonism in the legal system. Until you find somebody that does or can explain it to others, it's really hard to dissect, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to point out that if you go into your bishop and you tell him, look, bishop, I've lost my testimony, I have these issues, uh, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. I believe that this is false. And they decide either to, um, at that point, they'll turn around and tell the, the members of the congregation, stay away from this person yeah. because mm -hmm. they're dangerous because of the doctrine they have. But if I go in and say I raped one of the ward children, there's no warning whatsoever mm -hmm. for your children to stay away. So again, you see the church will act immediately to protect themselves against yeah. what they see a threat to people leaving the church, but they won't do a damn thing to help the kid that would, or the kids in the ward, even though they make all these press statements, they don't do a single thing to let the parents know what what's happening with this person and to right. warn them off. Right. I mean, so imagine that you're one of those individuals who are in the the bishop not the stake president but in the bishop's old ward if that person had been alone the church basically put that person in a place of authority and they were alone interviewing children about sexual things and they think that those people don't have a right to know that was actually the first thing that i raised with my stake president is that he was i i literally said you are very lucky this person never uh, interviewed my child, or we would be having a completely different discussion. That was our first discussion yeah. about this because they absolutely have a right to know. They have a right to have that discussion with their child in the the context that they feel appropriate and say, did did anything inappropriate happen? And and I would advise people if they're gonna if they have to have those difficult conversations, like 
please find some resources to know how to do it the right way, to not like, you know, guide the child one way or the other to help them feel safe to disclose if that happens. Like there are, there are entire nonprofits dedicated to the ways to have those conversations. And it's, it's, those are important resources to understand if you have to deal with that. Why the church won't partner with an organization like that boggles my mind. And just to jump off of what you said for one second, Landon, let's think of this hypothetical. Let's say that I'm a ward clerk and I go into the bishop and I say, Bishop, I'm so sorry, but I've been pilfering every 10th tithing dollar because of whatever reason. Are they really not going to do anything about it? Because if you believe in confidentiality of communication of confessions and communications, that goes both ways. You can't have it both ways to protect the good name of the church in one instance and then turn around and prosecute the guy who's stealing from tithing funds, which they absolutely have done and would do. Yeah. Right. There would be no expectation of com confidential communication then. And that's part of what I'm highlighting is they seem to be using this smokescreen, like you put it, Rebecca, to protect the good name of the church. I, I honestly don't believe there's anything more sinister than that. I've talked to a lot of ex-Mormons who think there is. I don't believe that. Um, but why they won't change it, I don't understand. Let's talk about this last case, because I think it will get to some of the things that Landon highlighted. So this case, Hutchinson v. Luddy, 1992, again, the Pennsylvania Superior Court. This is a uh, a really sad case. It was a, a civil case, actually, that was seeking uh, damages and seeking access to a secret archive of Catholic uh, sex abuse files, basically. Um, and the opinion basically starts and says, you know, this is an issue of first oppression in this appeal is whether a church can avoid the discovery of relevant information in a civil action against the church by putting it in a place which is designated by canon law as a secret archive. And so what the church in this instance, not the Mormon church, the Catholic church attempted to do is to keep things back. The civil discovery process is how you get access to information in a lawsuit. And so one of the things they attempted to do is basically have a canon law that created this secret archive where they kept um, where they kept these abuse files. And so that's what the question was, was are these things privileged? Are they otherwise not discoverable? And I liked this quote just point blank, uh, really hitting the point that you were talking about earlier, Landon. The, the, in answering the question, the Superior Court said, insofar as the canons of the church are in conflict with the law of the land, those canons must yield. This privilege protects priest-penitent communications. It does not protect information regarding the manner in which a religious institution conducts its affairs or information acquired by a church as a re result of independent investigations not involving confidential communications between priest and penitent. So again, what the what the Catholic Church in this case was attempting to do is argue for a very broad scope of this privilege, that basically anything that pertains to these confidential communications should stay out. The people who are suing should have no access to this. And I like that the, the Pennsylvania Superior Court sent a very clear message that you don't get to define legal rights by your religious beliefs. And that's that's one of the things that is very surprising to me about a lot of these cases is and like I am one of the biggest First Amendment and freedom of religion proponents ever. But freedom of religion means freedom of belief. It doesn't mean freedom of action. And even Justice Scalia, who who has since passed, but was one of the most conservative members of the Supreme Court, he wrote the employment um, 
the Oregon decision involving Employment Division versus Smith. That's the name of it. And that's one of the things that he highlighted is that the First Amendment can't be absolute freedom of action from neutral and gen otherwise generally applicable laws. And the reason should be really clear. If people can accept themselves out of neutral and generally applicable laws based on their religious beliefs, it is only a matter of time before a society that allows that completely crumbles. Our rules as a society, which is what law is, have to be absolute. You can't just accept yourself out because you don't believe in it. Even though there are a lot of people in this country who think that that's the way it works, that's not the way it works, and that can never be the way it works. That's not what the rule of law means, and that's not what the First Amendment was ever intended to mean. Is this why the church would destroy those hotline calls every night so that they didn't have files that they could be... Uh... That, that someone could come and investigate and, and get their hands on? Yeah, I don't think it's specific to this decision, but it's it's specific to that exact idea is if you had an entire treasure trove of every abuse case you've ever handled and people can analyze those and look through where you did or didn't make the right call. Yeah, there's potentially a lot of liability there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we talked, Landon brought up a little bit about how often when abuse happens in a stake or a ward, the, the parents, the people are never made aware till way after the fact, certainly not during. And this seems to happen over and over again. Yet in this case, uh, with the stake president, very quickly within a Sunday or two, um, a first counselor in that stake presidency jumped up on the stand. And uh, this was actually recorded. We're going to read the transcript instead of listening to the recording, but assured the members that everything was going to be okay. So very quickly, this announcement was made Never an announcement made about the abuse of this bishop in the past or that anybody needed to be on guard. So, Landon, do you want to read this first part? This is, again, in a Harrisburg stake, and it was made by the first counselor in the brothers state presidency. Yeah, brothers and sisters, many of you are aware that the state police this past week charged President Hensey with the failure to report information about an abuse situation that was given to him when he was acting as clergy as a state president. And there's been a lot of information that's been out on the internet and causing questions. The articles failed to mention that based on the research and the position the church has, the President Hensey in this particular situation did not have discretion or he was not permitted to report that particular information. This Can I pause you for one second? Yes, I'm sorry. Do. Please weigh so, in there. So we just looked at all this stuff in depth. And what I want to, to say is as we looked at all this stuff in depth, it is possible that that statement is true. Mm -hmm. It seems incredibly unlikely to me that that's true, but it is possible, and people need to keep that in mind. It's possible that what the church is saying here is correct. Um, I think that's really complicated, and I want to return to this fact real quickly, by the fact that not the news stories we read, but different news stories talked about how President Hensey did not only receive reports of this abuse from the abuser, he received reports of the abuse from the victims, and that will that is probably going to be the fatal problem in arguing that there was priest penitent privilege here. I mean, unless those victims did not want him to talk about it, and they, you know, the church can basically specifically show or get affidavits from them that say they didn't want that, and maybe that's the case. I don't know. 
But I want to say that it's possible what they're saying here is true. I think it's highly unlikely. Um, and I would expect that the prosecutors in Pennsylvania thought about the church taking this move, but it's possible, but I think very, very unlikely. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that, because that is the question everybody has. So, okay, Lana, you want to hit that next paragraph? This particular situation occurred over 20 years ago. The victims of the abuse are over 30 years old right now, and they've asked us to read a statement. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the they, yeah, this was they? weird from the transcript, but the yeah. they in this statement, based on the statement he's reading, is the church, not church. the victims. Yeah. That's yeah. unclear yeah. when we read it in the transcript, but right. when you listen to the recording, the context is a little bit clearer. Right. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints works actively to prevent abuse. Our hearts ache for victims of abuse, and the church is committed to addressing such incidents wherever they are found. The church trains its leaders and supports their lawful efforts. The charges now brought by local prosecutors for failing to report the abuse are misguided, and the church will vigorously defend him. And that's the same So real quick, Landon, when did the stake president learn of the abuse? 2020. Uh, 2002 or 2020? Yeah. 2020. So, so it's not over 20 years old. He, he learned about, it's two years old. Well, the, the actual abuse the, the actual event happened 20 years. 20 years ago, yeah. but he, he learned about it just two years ago. So. Right. But I, I just want to highlight this line that comes from the church's statement. Our hearts ache for victims of abuse, and the church is committed to addressing such incidents whenever they are found. That is a lie. It is a lie based on the facts of this very case. Like, they knew about it for years and didn't do anything. That is a lie. Like, how do they keep being allowed to get away with just admitting to facts that are in direct contradiction to what they say is their priority? It just, I can't, sorry, I know we've got a little long and I'm sorry to get so passionate, but I just, I can't stand the fact that they'll lie right to your face. Like, he's admitting that they didn't do something when they could. And yet, here we go. Like, no, well, they have an audience that needs to hear that. They have people that are willing to believe and overlook anything as long as they have this reassuring statement that now I think we've read twice in this podcast that everything is okay and we train our leaders to do what they're supposed to do. So, no, it, it's completely see through. You can if, if you have learned of this abuse and you're uh, you worked actively to prevent the abuse, you would stand up and read a letter in sacrament meetings saying, Brothers and sisters, we've just learned because the, the person has been arrested that was the bishop yeah. and is serving in another state. Brothers and sisters, we've learned that this person uh, was involved with this type of behavior. He used to be a bishop here. Uh, we would like to know if any of you have experienced any abuse of any kind and come forward and share well, we that. Have counselors with. available, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. We'll Let us help you heal. We'll be there to help you. Uh, I mean, in their situation, they would read a letter that says, you know, brothers and sisters, be you, you know comforted by the fact that your stake president found out about a pedophile in the ward. However, yeah. you don't need to worry about it. Nobody's going to know who it is, and we're going to uh, not say who it is, and and we're going to protect that person so that the good name of the church doesn't get out there. And you'll belong to a church that nobody thinks has pedophiles in it. So That's think right. how safe you are, brothers and sisters. Thank you, and go home. <laughs> And enjoy your day. Only with your you children. and I know. That's right. Doesn't that make you feel better? Yeah. yeah. What do you expect? Uh, what do you expect? In arms going, what? <laughs> what what can we expect from people who have literally gone on the record saying that not all things are true are useful? Yeah. Like 
that's the thing about Mormon culture that is such a mind blower when you start digging into it. And I wish I could get people who've never been in the church to understand is your definitions of things and your trust in this organization has you so mixed up and turned around that people don't even realize like they're being lied to right to their right to their faces. Yeah, Absolutely. that's true. I think there's more to the statement. Yeah. Do you want to read that, Colby? This is yeah, finishing the sure. statement here. The situation is more complicated legally than the information you're reading on the internet would lead you to believe. I just amend and say it's also way more complicated than the church would lead you to believe. <laughs> One thing I can tell you is that Elder Cook, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, has been actively monitoring and watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. President Haney, big fan of comic books, I've heard, who is the <laughs> president of the area where we live, General Authority 70, has also thoroughly reviewed the situation. He's talked with all the lawyers involved, and the counsel we've been given is that we move forward, we continue to have our meetings, continue to work, and that all of this will be resolved appropriately, and that it's in Heavenly Father's hands, and that we're we'll, we're to have confidence in our church leaders. And <laughs> I'm sorry, this is just so gross I know, it's to me. Really hard to read. <laughs> and it that it's in Heavenly Father's hands, and that we're to have confidence in our church leaders and understand that everything that President Hensey did was fully approved by the church. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad they put that on the record. He followed appropriate legal protocols and that he's done everything that he was supposed to have done. Well, I guess we will see, won't we? Wow. I feel like that statement could be used in court because right there, if Hensi says, yeah, they told me to do it and I did it, here's a statement where they said I did what they said. I mean, we don't have the records. Those are shredded. So any other thoughts on this, uh, Colby? I just feel like they keep wanting their name dropping many church authorities to make everybody feel like, Whew, well, if Cook thinks it's okay and Haney yeah. thinks it's okay, it must be okay, you know? Ugh. Yep. Nope. That's exactly what I think. I actually like this bolded part. I, I actually added this bolding because you know, our last discussion on critical thinking and epistemology and the idea of falsification. I mean, he put a falsify, like a falsifiable statement right there. Like Mm -hmm. this is in heavenly father's hands and we're to have confidence in our church leaders and understand that everything president Hinsey did was fully approved by the church. He followed the appropriate legal, legal protocols and everything he's done is what he was supposed to do. So if he goes to jail, what does that mean for like, think of how many members are probably in the midst of a faith crisis in this stake and in this ward where this abuse happened and the church didn't do what most people would assume it would do. Like, think about how those people are feeling. Like, they don't care that Elder Cook thinks it's okay. Of course he does. Yeah, but enough people do care. And and it's kind of like when the leaders speak um, or give their opinion, the debate is over. They don't need to worry anymore about this because they've been told it's in God's hands, it's in the apostles' hands, it's in President Haney's hands. Everything's going to be fine. And there'll be another spin if if he is prosecuted and it doesn't go the way they think it will. There'll be another spin on it. You know, maybe they'll throw him under the bus. Maybe that's what they'll have to do. I, that's where the liability issues come in, right, for any of us. It'll either be him throw under the bus or it'll be standard persecution. Of, they just don't understand yeah. our beliefs Religious and they hate Mormons and whatever. Yeah. And, and I think we can all be, you know, feel safe to know that, uh, the apostles and the church leaders all knew that they were forming and approving clone companies during the SEC. Um, <laughs> uh oh, here we go. But we we still got legal repercussions from it. So yeah, you can only go so far, and then finally you're found out, right? And you're gotten. So let's see, what do we have next? I think we were going to go into a little bit about um, just members and 
as you serve your callings, are there liabilities? Are there things where you think you're perfectly safe doing, um, but then if something goes wrong, does the church have your back? Are you kind of left hung out to dry? And we looked into the handbook, didn't we, Landon? I think yeah. that's our next slide. Yeah, we can, and maybe can Landon, I say something real quick? Yeah. Oh, please do. Yes. It's it's real easy for us to look at the stake president who's been charged and think that he's the bad guy. And I'm not saying that he's a good guy, um, because I think that moral courage means more than just doing what you're told. Um, but he's in a really difficult situation. And that's why we wanted to have this discussion is I I believe what the church just said there, that he was just following their direction and their advice. But it's not Quentin Cook who's going to end up in jail if that advice was wrong. It's this guy. It's this individual guy who you know, it, it was reported on, so I'm not like doxing him or anything, but he, he is a lobbyist by trade. Can you think of anyone who's going to want to sponsor? I know. Like, like he's going to probably, this has probably blown up his entire life. Yeah, I and I, I feel really bad for him and his family because I guarantee, and I, and I still feel this, even as someone who's left the church, Mormons are some of the best people in the world, misguided and judgmental in some ways but they have the, some of the best intentions of people I've ever met. And, uh, that, and that can't be understated. And so I really feel for this state president, like I really do. Yep. Um, and, and I, even though I hope the church is held accountable, I, I feel terrible that he's got to be this sacrificial lamb basically of this test case. Um, and that's why we wanted to have this discussion about member liability is because he's the one left holding the bag for what, will end up being if if it, he ends up you know being proven guilty it's that he was relying on bad legal advice from the church's attorneys who probably didn't even understand pennsylvania law yeah. like that if they're practicing in utah i don't know what they're giving advice is on pennsylvania law for but maybe i'm guessing at what happened you know no, I think that's a good guess. And I've even heard like RFM talk about, gosh, you know, advice across state lines interfering in the legal process. You know, that could be a problem, too. And and I've said I hope that he, um, President Hinsey, gets his own counsel, not church counsel, because in the end, if it gets really ugly, uh, the church is going to have to throw him under the bus. I hope he realizes that you know, and can protect himself because I agree. I have a lot of empathy for him because I think if you really start to think about it, members can find themselves very quickly and very easily in situations that they never expected just doing their callings. So we kind of looked at the handbook, maybe Landon, can you just very quickly summarize the kinds of things that we found out in here, like how you have to have your own insurance when you drive and, you know, just things that should be a clue that um, they're not going to have your back if something happens. Yeah, one of, one of the things is, you know, they say uh, those who plan, conduct, and supervise church activities or events should plan carefully and take reasonable and appropriate steps during an activity for the safety of volunteers, participants, and others to avoid ac accidents or injuries. So, you know, right there, they kind of, you know, and I, I think you'd read this in any corporation book of, you know, rules or whatever, but uh, you know, they do kind of put it on, well, it's, you know, your your responsibility to to make sure the safety of any activity that you put on. And uh, the first line there in the injury to activity participants, it says the church requests that participants in a church planned or church supervised activity utilize their own health or accident insurance in case of injury. Typically, you know, if you get hurt at, at, a, at a place of employment or a place of right. 
of business, uh, their uh, their homeowners insurance or their you know they they would cover that injury. Uh, but the church asks that you provide your own insurance uh, in order to do that. So uh, they, they do mention that there is a uh, what's called church activity medical assistance uh, that will uh, help out after your insurance pays. <laughs> so <laughs> after your insurance pays, then they could kick in up to $15,000 per person per incident uh, wow. as part of the church. So they, they do limit that. Uh, one of the things that uh, got me interested in this is the automobile li liability, um, because I was a scoutmaster, and I know that uh, when I got made the scoutmaster, I had to fill out a tour permit, and I had to show that I had enough insurance on my vehicle to transport the kids. Um, and so uh, the, the requirement from the Boy Scouts, which was an arm of the church at the time, was higher than the uh, requirements for, for my state. So I had to go pay additional money in order to uh, have enough insurance to cover uh, the church's liability in this case. And, and it they made it very clear if there was an accident as a scoutmaster, I would be the one that everyone would go after. Um, it would be my insurance that they would sue. They might be able to go after the church additionally, but the, the first place that would be paying for bills would be my uh, insurance which I thought, you know, at the time when I thought the church was poor, I was like, okay, I'm willing to <laughs> Happy do to that. Help. <laughs> but now that I know they're worth billions of dollars, I look at other churches and I go, they have church buses. Yeah. They have, they, the church owns it and insures their own vehicles so that when their people go on these activities, they're insured at the expense of the church, not at expense of the individual. So that was something that got me thinking about, uh, about this as I uh, read through some of so these. Things. When you read that passage before, does that mean if like I'm the Relief Society president and I plan an activity and somebody has a slip and fall, even if it's at the building because I planned the things that would happen there, I could be liable? I Not That sure would be a stretch. That would be yeah. a stretch. If it was at my home, now that right. could happen. But if it was at yeah, the so church and I had planned, okay. Anytime we're talking about an injury like that, that falls under like the type of or we would call like premises liability. Okay. And um, it, it'd be unlikely that you as the Relief Society president, if someone had a slip and fall at the church building, that they'd be looking to recoup from you. That'd be a, that'd be a real stretch of basically your position within the church. Yeah, that's However, why I was that, never a Relief Society president. I was afraid of that I, all. The, no, they would never. Uh, that's a good point though, because how many times do we move activities to our home yeah. Or to somebody's house yeah, yeah. to do the activity, especially when three wards share a building and you go, oh, right. we need to get you have kids, the, the church activity tonight. days, yeah. Young men, come over to my house or young women, come and we'll bake a yep. cake at my house. Then yep. if something happens, it would be your homeowner's insurance that would be responsible. Yep. Exactly case. right. If it happens in your house and the conditions are met, the liability is going to attach to you. That's right. Or to your homeowner's insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Rebecca, you had a story um, uh, before we go to that one about, uh, uh, I can't remember the how you Just know the person that, that, yeah, <laughs> transporting. Uh, yeah, no, talking about um, driving and cars. And it's true. This was a long time ago, but it was a relative who had, um, she was in the Young Women's and she was one of the counselors, I think, and they were headed to a youth conference out of state, across state lines. And many I think most of the young women were undocumented. And so she was being asked to drive them, like six or seven of them in her car 
across state lines. And she had to take pause and think, would I be liable if someone stopped us? Would there be a problem with this transporting somebody, you know, that was undocumented across state lines? And she opted not to do it. She told the bishop she just she didn't know what could happen. She just didn't want to risk it. So she was thinking, thinking ahead. But I think a lot of people don't um, in situations like that, driving or transporting or anything like that. So, I, I yeah, so once often. you start going there, then you're like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> there are so many things that could end really badly. And you think about missionaries. I think you have a story about transportation and a missionary, don't you, Landon? Yeah, I, I know someone who uh, was in an African nation. Uh, they were driving uh, in an African nation. And, as a missionary. As a missionary. And uh, a kid came up over the, the bank and, and ran in front of him and they hit him, um, flipped him over the car. They got out to help and all the locals came and started uh, uh, like threatening them. So they jumped in the car and, and drove to the next town um, to, to try to get out of it. And the church uh, immediately got them out of the country yeah. uh, so that they couldn't be prosecuted or anything. Yeah. The, the, the boy ended up being fine. It, it flipped him over the car, but he, he, he was okay. But yeah, so uh, that's certainly a case. And I, I think we see, you know, other places as, as missionaries. Uh, I know a lot of countries that you go in and they tell you to go in and they, they'll keep your passports and they'll go get your visas. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you're in the country without a visa because, yep. you know, the church is holding it and they can't get the visa. And so you're basically in the country illegally. Um, what repercussions can come from that? You know, you can be liable for those type of things. So there's certainly times when the church, you know, asks you, and I think generally the church tries to be responsible for it. Yeah. But it is important that that people understand that you may be liable for something and you shouldn't just say, oh, yeah, the bishop asked me or the church asked yeah, me to do take this. Care of me. You need to do some risk management and say, mm, is this is this wise? Should I do this? That just reminded well, me of the missionaries in Russia that were actually arrested. Do you remember that? Like maybe four or five years ago and they spent some time there because they had been caught with religious materials. So, yeah. You really have to think about yourself and not this overarching idea that I'm protected or I'm doing the Lord's work. You have to think about yourself. What were you going to say, Colby? Well, I was going to say, aside from just like financial or legal liability, you know, my wife, while my wife and I met in the mission field, we served in the same mission. We were just good friends. She was engaged to someone else when we came home, in fact. Um, but I'm just too damn charming. Um, well, yes, you are. I can see that right away. <laughs> I can too. <laughs> she made the right choice. <laughs> but she had a companion that struggled with some serious mental health issues. And like like many people, many young people in the mission field do, it's a really demanding um, schedule. It's a really demanding like psychological thing, especially if you're an introvert like me. A lot of times people are surprised to learn I'm an introvert. Um, but, you know, she had a companion that would regularly threaten to kill herself. And I think about that. I think about that now, you know, and it's just like, well, talk to her, pray with her, you know, they, and I think they had appointments and stuff lined up with the counselor, but beyond just, you know, financial and, and legal liability, like, can you imagine the the guilt and yep. difficulty she'd live with if one day she one morning she woke up and of course it's exactly what you said rebecca people just think it's all going to be okay because they trust this system and they trust that god behind this system when you know the reality is i i think the evidence shows that's that's just not the way that things work like can you imagine waking up and you would feel so responsible for that person having committed yeah. suicide 
um, after we got home from our missions, in fact, we both taught at the MTC. And I remember specifically one day I came back uh, to the classroom that we were, we were actually team teachers and we came back to the classroom or I came back to the classroom for my shift. And one of the sister missionaries had locked everyone else out of the classroom. They were all in the hallway and she was alone under her jacket, under her desk and would only talk to me because she was experiencing a mental health crisis. Oh my God. And, and like, here I am, I'm a 23, like I'm 23, 24 years old. I'm a full-time student and also working part-time and I've got my own wife and I've got my own kid. And like, I was not adequately trained to be put in that situation. And I wasn't even told like, here's what you do if you have this situation. I guess what I'm saying is beyond just the legal and financial liability, like the church puts people in really, really difficult positions. I mean, even just the position of, like, I've thought about this before. I was never in a bishop, I was never a bishop or in a bishopric, but like being in that position, you're exposed to so many things that like, I don't want to be in that yeah. position of people yeah. asking me, how do I save my marriage? Or I'm going through a faith crisis. What do I do? Like you're put in these impossible positions that no one can handle because people assume that you can handle it because God's with you as God's servant. And if you've ever been in one of those scenarios, like you just know that there's no miraculous help that's coming, you know? Well, you sound like Bishop Nick, if everybody listened to his Mormon story and my conversations with him um, prior to that, that's exactly what he said. Day after day, the pain of people that you are not equipped to handle and you're just a nice guy and you're just trying to listen, but it takes an incredible toll. Why do you have to know these things? You know, why? And you don't have any special powers or special help. You're just a guy who's listening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, and, and I can say, and this is really unfortunate, but I dated somebody at BYU whose mission companion did commit suicide. And you're absolutely right. It is it is completely devastating to those that are left. And again, you're a kid and you're not equipped at all. So that mental liability that you have and you're put in those positions. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, let's go to our next one. Whew. Okay, yeah. so here's how they're talking about. And I think, Landon, you read this a little more in detail than I did. So maybe just roughly go over it. But this is in the handbook, how you're supposed to respond to abuse. And it's very positive. It talks about instantly letting people know, doesn't it, Landon? I just was really surprised. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to compare this against the, the next slide, because it says, yeah. here's what you're supposed to do when you're responding to abuse as a leader. And this is the church handbook. When abuse occurs, the first and immediate responsibility of church leaders is to help those who have been abused and to Sounds protect great. vulnerable persons from future yeah. abuse. Members should never be encouraged to remain in a home or situation that is abusive or, or unsafe. You should be caring, compassionate, sensitive uh, with victims and perpetrators and their families. You shouldn't disregard a report of abuse or counsel a member not to report criminal activity to law enforcement. This sounds great. So th this is exactly what the church handbook is saying that you should be doing. Yeah. Professional counseling may be helpful for victims and perpetrators and their families, almost always advised in cases of serious abuse. So here we have them saying exactly what we said they should be doing. Yeah. It's then in the you handbook. scroll down. That's then you what scroll they down. Do. This is all in the same section. But you scroll We're like, down this is and then here's the following. And then you get to the policy. Policy. Which is what nuts and bolts of what you actually do. And you realize that what was up above is just kind of lip service. In general, wouldn't it be nice if this could happen? But here's mm -hmm. the policy. 
and yep. look at this. Go ahead, Landon. The policy is call the helpline. That's the Immediately first Immediately <laughs> call the helpline. That's the first line. So above it said the first thing is to, you know, uh, take report, care of the abused help. and the victim and get help and make sure they report to law enforcement. But here it says immediately call the helpline. Well, and just to come back to, you know, my comments about demonstrated lying, um, can you go back one side, Landon? Yep. Yeah. When abuse occurs, the first and immediate responsibility yeah. of church leaders is to help those who have been abused and to protect vulnerable persons from future abuse. That's a lie. That's this, a lie. The facts of this case, again, is another data point that indicate that I don't know why that line's in there because it's not true. The church not does true. not do that. If they treated that statement like it was true, this stake president would not have sat on knowing that a bishop had abused kids. At least those allegations date back a long time. But like we talked about, the reason that the Pennsylvania law probably is structured the way it is, is because of what we know about the statistics of these types of people, about per perpetrators of child sex abuse. And I just have to highlight this. Like I've actually done an entire uh, Reddit post building on the Arizona case, building on my local case. Here's another example that highlights this line from the handbook and says, this line is a demonstrable lie. There's no other way to look at it. Accidents don't happen over and over and over again in a coordinated pattern like this. So I don't know why that line's in the handbook. It's not true. It's not their first and immediate responsibility. Like you were saying, if we go right down, yeah. what's their immediate Same responsibility? All our liability line. Those those are in direct conflict. They can't both be true. You can't have two first res first responsibilities. And, yeah. and one Arizona, is, I think. Oh, go ahead, Lennon. I was going to say the Arizona case, a perfect example of this. Yeah. The child was abused over and over and over again, For while years. the bishop knew what had been per what what the the father was doing. Uh, he didn't. Right. And in fact, one of the children. So the bishops, the two bishops knew about it for seven years. And one of the children hadn't even been born yet. Yeah. So that child had never been abused. And the, the sentencing judge at Liza Adams sentencing specifically said, if the bishop would have done something or, or you or anyone else who was connected to this, but the bishop was specifically called out. And he said, if that would have happened, the second victim wouldn't have even been a victim at all. That is directly tied, at least partially, to the bishop not reporting based on an optional mandatory reporting exemption. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so a couple other things for guidelines on handling confession, restitution, investigation, communication with aggrieved victims and confidentiality in situations involving abuse, stake presidents and bishops should refer to the handbook. So. Again, above, they told you to help out, do whatever you needed to get them. But here it's saying, you know, look, look here, uh, look here for what to do and for discipline. And then the last one is church leaders should not testify in civil or criminal cases involving abuse without first conferring with the Office of General Counsel at church headquarters. So, again, uh, what it, it said to cooperate with law enforcement uh, to stop the abuse, it would seem that if you uh, know these facts that uh, your responsibility would be to go to a case. And uh, I, the, the thing on this is I don't think I've ever heard of where a bishop has gone in to a criminal case to defend the victim. It's yeah. always been the perpetrator that I've yeah. heard that they're there to support. Um, so, so that's, uh, and, and uh, I skipped one up there. Um, uh, I think it said somewhere in there uh, that you're, you know, I, did it say that you're supposed to take it up to uh, the stake president if something happens? I, uh, I because maybe if, that was in the above. 
Yeah, uh, abuse, stake presence, and bishop should. I don't know what the general handbook says, addition to that, but if if you're supposed to start reporting it to other people within the church, that specifically does not say, you notice they don't say keep it, keep the, the uh, abuse uh, silent. That's not what they say, although they do have a thing here that says, you know, for uh, uh, handling uh, confidentiality, refer to the handbook, but. Uh, you know, that's not the first thing it says to do is don't tell anybody, keep it, keep it secret. It seems like you're supposed to tell the stake president and others. And, right. And, and those, those lines on confidentiality, because I was actually, so that 38.6.2.2, that's confidentiality. And that's what I was looking at this afternoon. Um, and, and the only exception that it gives you to go ahead and automatically call authorities in that confidentiality provision of the handbook is if someone's life is directly in danger, if someone's someone's life. That's the only exception that they give, which again, just going back to that statement, like our first responsibility is to look out for victims of abuse. There's no exception that would line up with that priority that they claim in this section of the handbook. I just wish we could train members to not think of going to their leaders first for these kinds of things. You shouldn't. You need to go to the proper authorities. You know, need no. to go to counseling. You there's nothing that your bishop can do for you at all. Right, and that's not that doesn't take anything away from people who still believe in this, like the core of this ecclesiastical process or the atonement. Like repentance and forgiveness can come after mm -hmm. the person actually pays for their crimes. These are crimes, right? That I mean, yeah. proper channels. And, These are and, and I don't know to protect the bishop. I don't know why the church doesn't uh, make mandatory reporting. I I know of a case where uh, the it, it tore the ward apart because uh, the 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 man's daughter had uh, had her friend over for a sleepover, and the story goes, you know, his story is he was in the shower, came out into his bedroom. Uh, to get dressed and the girl was there in his bedroom and saw him you know the girl's parents story is is that you know he had taken her and then you know uh uh showed himself to her and and so then that story instead of calling the police or anything they go to the bishop and now the bishop is stuck in between this going what happened who did what he's trying to He's trying to referee the situation. He shouldn't be in that position oh. at all. Well, he's not qualified. Situation. Half the ward says, no, the girl is right. The other half says, no, the man was, you know, it was just an accident. If it was, you have to report it, then all he has to do is make a call and let the police sort it out and do the investigation who are trained. And he says, I was required to do it by law. He's not hated by anybody because that's what he had to do by law. And, and it protects the bishop. But in that case of they go to the bishop, now he's stuck refereeing the situation. And that's a horrible Right. And, th and that comes back to what we were talking about as far as like when we're talking about privilege or we're talking about these optional mandatory reporting exemptions or actual exemptions, all of them are premised on the church's actual doctrine and policies. So that's the real important thing to keep in mind here. Like the church can make man mandatory reporters of every single bishop by just putting lines in the handbook that's that basically create the same exception for uh, when someone's life is in danger for violating confidentiality for child abuse cases. And they can just do it tomorrow. They could do it tomorrow and end this problem once and for all. Why they don't? Uh, ask. 
ask your bishop, ask your stake president why they don't, because they could. And then there's no reasonable expectation of confidentiality with that type of confession ever. And then the, no bishop, no stake president ever has to be put in this situation again. The church could end this tomorrow by adding one sentence to that damn handbook, and they won't do it. And I don't understand why. I, I think the reason they won't do it is exactly what happened in this case is, um, you know, who wins if if they if they if the if the stake president had reported it, the victim would have gotten the, the care they needed. The perpetrator would have gotten uh, the you know, he'd have gone to jail. Right. He would have been stopped. He would have been stopped. Other people would have been protected. That's a good thing. The victim getting help. What's the bad thing that comes out of it? It was a bishop and the church could have been liable if in the if he did that in the role as a bishop or because of his influence as a bishop, someone could have sued the church. That's why the church would say, don't tell anybody because they're not liable if nobody, if everybody stays within the church, they can control the situation. Once mm -hmm. it gets in the courts, they can't. So to me, that's the reason that, that that's the only person who comes out on the bad end in certain situations and the church wants to control those situations. Yeah, even with that, I think you're right that that's what the motivation is, is this misguided attempt to like protect the good name of the church at all costs. But even with that, this is where I'm like, I don't understand why they keep making this mistake. Because when these cases come to light, the church looks way worse yep. than it would if it would just cop to what happened, give an honest apology and say, you know what, we called this person, we thought this person was the right person. Clearly we were wrong. We're so sorry that we exposed your children to a child abuser and allowed that child abuser to ask them specific sexual questions in interviews. We're not perfect. We're doing the best we can. And we're really sorry. Like people would have so much more grace and give the church so much more latitude if it would just admit what is clear to anyone who doesn't have strong religious conditioning not to believe it. It's a very human organization and institution, and people would just cut it so much more slack if they could just admit that. Once and for all, we're human, we make mistakes, but for some reason, it's like it's like they can't let that authoritarianism go. That's what it seems like to me, is like, because once these cases come to light, it makes the church look way worse. Like you talked about a ward being divided. We yeah. had a member of the state high council leave over, leave the church over what came to light when they found out wait, my stake president knew that there was a bishop who had abused and didn't tell members? There were tons of people who went into faith pride, like multiple families from our ward that left or have distanced themselves from the church or changed their relationship. So that's the thing is like, even accepting that that's the decision they're making, Landon, it's like, haven't you seen enough of these cases to realize that it doesn't even work? Like what you're doing doesn't even protect the good name of the church. I guess unless nobody finds out and maybe there's, just more, there's more and more cases that we just don't know about. But when they come to light, man, it's way worse than if the church would have just been honest in the first instance. And ironically, they're the ones who taught me that principle. Yes. That is the ironic part, but they do it over and over with abuse, with finance, with everything. I think it maybe is an old model that worked before the 21st century, you know, with full transparency. And I feel that's why this case is so important and why everybody's watching it, because it's, it's really going to set the bar here. And and I think there will be more cases that are brought to light, just like this, where in the past, everything kind of happened in the shadows. People were very trusting. 
I think people know better now. So we'll keep watching. And if there are new developments, we'll have Colby back on to talk about them because I think this is just the beginning. Obviously he's, mm -hmm. you know, he's got to go through a long process and the church is going to be there every step of the way until he finally tells him, nope, I'm getting my own counsel, which I hope he does. I mean, like you said, Colby, I, I'm very sad for this gentleman. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very sad for what has happened to him because I, I think he didn't have good advice. And I think even if he's found innocent or whatever, that professionally his life may have been blown up career-wise. I, It's just, it's devastating. And I think we can yeah, all feel for I, him. I mean, I really considered because of the um, my understanding of Idaho law and really digging into it deep, I honestly considered filing, you know, separate police reports based on our state president's failure to report. And the only reason I didn't do it is because I have enough sympathy for him as a person and more almost for his family that I was, I just did, I couldn't be the cause of yeah. that happening of him being held to account for the church's sins. Um, so I feel really bad for the stake president. I really honestly do. Um, but that's, you know, when you're acting in the church's name and the church is doing shady things, that's yeah. what might happen. And I feel really bad that he probably doesn't know and didn't intend, yep. but We'll just have to see how this shakes out. And I'll be happy to come back because I will yeah. be following this. No, we really appreciate your perspective. And again, it's just sort of, as we heard possibly said, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, do your duty Mormon, which means you know what you have to do and everything else be damned, right? Do your duty Mormon. So, all right. Well, this was an intense conversation, but I think we learned a lot and it was a really important conversation and it's an ongoing conversation. So please, everybody comment, let us know, have you been following this story? What do you think of it? What are your, what are your perspectives? Are you concerned now that you do start to think about, about your own liability when you were a member of people that you know, that are still in and, and possibly might find themselves in a position that they don't want to be in just because they're doing what they think they're supposed to do in the church. It's a it's a huge question that I think needs to be looked into farther. So um, we'd like to thank Colby for coming on. And of course, Landon and everybody, please like and subscribe to Mormonish Podcast. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes come out, you can hit that notification bell. And if you would like to financially support the podcast, we have links in our show notes to Venmo and PayPal. And also, if you're a listener, you can follow the link to mormonishpodcast.org and you can donate there. And we certainly appreciate everybody that does. It means a great deal to us and we appreciate all of you. So thank you again, everybody. And we will see you next time on Mormonish Podcast. Thank you. Good night. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.